Heavenly Father, we are grateful for how you answered prayers, and you did. You did. You, you tell us that the fields are white with harvest, but the labors are few, and so we pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest that you would send out labors. And so we thank you for, for bringing Paul. That uh, God, I pray, ask that you prepare him, his, his, his wife, his three kids, God, as they come to such a, a new part of the nation. You let it just be a joy, God. You let it be an incredible joy. Thank you for the win that this is for our church. God, as we prepare to hear your word, I, I, I pray that you would just put us in a, a posture of reception. This, this text could rub up against us in some really hard ways, but it's actually incredibly liberating if we hear what it's saying. And so we ask that you'd help us to hear what it's saying, uh, help us stay focused and stay attentive to it, um, that we wouldn't be distracted, that, we, that, that our, even our bodies would be engaged in the work of hearing from you. God, above all the things that we want right now, is we want to leave this time more impressed with Jesus. So make him loud to us. Make what he's done loud. Make what he's doing loud. Let that be true during this sermon. Let it be true as we sing. Let it be true as we receive communion. Let it be true as we leave this time of corporate worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we started 1 John last week. We'll be in this five-chapter letter for a number of months. And in 1 John, there's a lot of different ways we could work out different themes and different parts of it. But, but really, 1 John lays out a number of tests, a number of portraits, a number of snapshots of things that Christians do. Uh, hence the title of this series, Stuff Christians Do. Um, each of the things Christians do in 1 John, it provides um, an assessment of sorts for ourselves, kind of a gut check moment of do we actually really believe or not. It, it, it provides a roadmap, it, hopefully some inspiration. I pray today would be some inspiration about what you're invited to as a follower of Christ, or if you're not, what you're invited to through faith in Jesus to then pursue as a follower of Christ. And today, specifically, what we're going to look at is a Christian's relationship with sin, um, it's fun, right? Everybody wants to talk about sin, uh, but I actually think it is. I think it's actually incredibly liberating for us to look at a text like this that talks about our relationship with sin. And, and if we'll hear it, this text is going to provide for us an incredible comfort, um, uh, incredible confidence in the work of Christ, and ultimately, as it applies into our lives, transformation and change. Um, specifically, what I want to look at is three things. The foundation of the Christian life, the growth of the Christian life, and the grace of God for the Christian life. If you're able, wherever, you're, wherever you are, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through verse 2 of chapter 2. This is God's liberating, freeing, helpful, Christ-exalting Word for us. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 
My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Feel free to grab a seat. This is the message. We begin with this, this phrase written from John, who's writing back to a collection of house churches. He was a, a pastor to them and a leader to them. And he's writing back to them. He says, this is the message that we have heard and proclaim to you. And I love this observation that Robert Yarborough makes. He says that if anyone studies first, second, or third John, John wrote these three letters, uh, also the gospel of John and Revelation last book of the Bible, but these these three letters, first, second, and third John, the single loudest impression is going to be the grandeur and the centrality of God. The way Yarborough says it, he says this, he says, there is hardly a verse or even a clause anywhere that does not name a person of the Godhead, the Trinity, a divine attribute, or a divine work. I love that description of these letters. And I, and I love this as we talk about the Christian life and how do we live this Christian life, that the foundation of the Christian life has nothing to do with us and what we do, but with God. That's where John starts. It's who he is. Verse 5 gives us a very powerful, very succinct statement of who God is. And, and maybe as we look at it, just ask this question, when you think of God, what do you think? How often do you think of God? What do you think of His nature and His, his character, what He's like? Eugene Peterson, in his book on Revelation, talking about John who wrote this, who also wrote Revelation, makes this insight about John. He says this, he says, John is God-intoxicated, God-possessed, God-articulate. I love that. I want to be that. Verse 5 helps us. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. Let's just uh, spend a little bit of time. I and mean, we could preach an entire sermon, entire sermon series on that phrase, God is light. I'll just give you a summary of what that looks like or, or what that means. If you read through the Bible, there's various uses of, of light in relationship to God. I'll give you four of them. God is true. So when we talk about light, one of the things that we see in the Bible is that light equals truth, darkness equals falsehood. So this is saying that God is true. Light also in the Bible equals wisdom, just like darkness would equal foolishness. So we could say it this way, God is true, God is wise. Something else we could say about God when we say God is light is we could say God is beautiful. Light in the Bible can mean radiance and glory and splendor and majesty. And then I think the, 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 the phrase that probably most relates to the context of, of John here, where we're walking in the light, this, this kind of way that we behave and we act, we could say something like this, that God is holy. When we talk about God being light, it's saying He is holy. Actually, the Bible says He's holy, holy, holy. The only thing said about God that's repeated three times to create emphasis about what He's like, it's saying He is morally upright in all of His perfections. He is totally other. He is unstained, unblemished. Nothing like Him. God is light. It's amazing. And one of the things, though, what if the last part of the phrase wasn't there? God is light and in Him is no 
darkness at all? Like, what if he wasn't always light? What if he wasn't pure light? What if he was light mixed with darkness? Like, what would that do as the foundation of the Christian life? I love the text. It actually, it literally means this. There is no darkness in him, none. (laughs) There is no darkness in him, none. It's not good grammar in English, but it's incredible grammar in the Greek. It's a way of declaring this, that you cannot have a more emphatic way of saying it. He is light and nothing but light. Some of you know this already. I was in a boy band in high school, one of the most wonderful memories of my life. I thank God repeatedly. I thank Him regularly that iPhones and YouTube did not exist at this time, that the internet was in its infancy, so there is nothing you can go find. Um, But I was in a boy band for a number of years. I started with a group of guys, uh, three other guys that were inquire with me in high school and we began it as this acapella doo-wop group i know this doesn't sound very cool but like in the mid 90s i guess it sort of was and so we would we would we did it we formed it because we thought it would be a good way of meeting girls um and one time we were we were singing downtown seattle we were at the the science center kind of like the the kind of where the amusement park stuff all is and we would just gather and we start to sing and get like this crowd that would come around and someone came up and they handed us a a business card and and so ended up being uh, uh, someone who, who owned a record label, not a very big deal at all, very small. Um, but we were like, this is so cool. Maybe we should do this and we could have a career. We could do all this. So we ended up signing a contract with them. We ended up signing this contract to be in, uh, to be this, this, this boy band group. And we had like, you know, coordinated like linen outfits and like loan jewelry. We even made a music video of which it does not exist as well. Thanks be to God. Um, But we signed this contract. But after a couple years of doing this, I was like, you know what? I don't know if I want to keep doing this. I I was dating Katie, my wife, who who we we were dating at the time, but she was going off to college. She was coming to to Western here in Bellingham. And I was like, not going to do the college thing. I was going to do the boy band. That's what I was going to do. And I realized that that is never going to work. It's not going to happen. And so I wanted to go to college. I tried to go to college. I've been accepted at Western, but then the manager told me I couldn't. He said, you signed a contract. He said, you should have read the fine print on the contract. I almost wasn't able to go to Western because of the fine print on the the contract, and I was able to, to get out of it in a variety of ways which required lawyers and all sorts of stuff. There's no fine print with God. In him there is no darkness, none. There, there, there's no surprises. There's no disappointments coming. There's, you don't have to read the contract so closely to see, wait, how, how is this really going to work out? How am I, I going to get trapped in, in this? There's no surprises. There's no letdowns. There's no regrets. There's no mixed anything. And one of the things I will tell you as a foundation for the Christian life, why this is such good news, is in a world that constantly changes what it believes. It's constantly shifting. It's constantly confused. You don't have to be because God is light and in him there is no darkness. And that's the foundation we get to build from. This perfect, sure, never shifting foundation. And that's where it goes. In verses 6 and 7, what we see is, is is a principle being worked out. So we have this foundation for the Christian life, which is God himself. And out of that is then the growth of the Christian life. But the principle that's being laid out in verses 6 and 7 is, it's, it's a pretty clear principle. It's, it's really kind of a test in these verses that what it's saying is like how we walk or 
really the pattern of our, our lives, and that's what that word walk, I mean, literally just means walking, that the, the overarching pattern of our lives is a helpful way of seeing if we actually believe that God is light and we know God or not. There are all sorts of cautions with this for sure, and we will spend First John talking about these cautions. But what it's saying is that in principle, you should be able to have some self-awareness of whether you believe in God or not by the pattern of your life. Verse 6 and 7, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And we're going to finish out that verse here in a minute. But there's a, do- there, there's a doctrine behind this principle of, of how, how we're living is, a, is one signpost to do we believe. If we say we, we have fellowship with God who is light, but we constantly live in darkness, then, then, then our confession, our statement in our life is so contrary that how could it actually be real? But behind this is a doctrine. There's a, a really beautiful doctrine behind this principle. And it's actually one of the more neglected doctrines that actually has some of the biggest impact in the life of a follower of Christ. It's this word called regeneration. It's an incredible word called regeneration. We, we see that word in Titus chapter 3. You can go there and see it. There's other spots. Where, there's a spot in John, actually, in First John that doesn't use that word, but it uses the same concept. So let me, let me read that. First John 3, 9 says this. This is what's behind the walking in light. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Again, no one born of God. That's, it's talking about regeneration. The, the Bible uses other phrases to talk about regeneration, the born again, from death to life, hearts of stone that become hearts of flesh. And, and there's all sorts of cautions around the language that's being used here. That's why we're taking so much time as we go through first. John, but behind it, it's saying that if God has saved you, that he's created spiritual life in you. He's created new affections in you. He's created new desires in you. He's empowered you with, with new strength through the Spirit to obey His commands. That's why it says you're gonna, if you have fellowship with Him, you're going to walk in the light. There's going to be some difference. We might define regeneration briefly like this. It's the supernatural work of God through the Holy Spirit to give life to spiritually dead people. Just no, no, note this. It's all the work of God. And we are the beneficiaries for a new walk. Now, the next title of, uh, or the next point in, in my notes, this is what it says, regeneration is rad, but not radical. I don't know if I've ever used the word rad in a sermon, but, but regeneration is, it is a stunning statement of what's actually possible in the Christian life. Regeneration is so good because what it's saying is that we can actually love the way we want to love that we can actually serve the way we want to serve, that we can be the kind of people that we really want to, want to be in, in this life, by, all by God's grace, all by His, His strength, all by His mercy, all by His kindness. But it's actually saying that, that we can live transformed life, or if we use the text, that we can actually walk in light and not in darkness. And I don't want you to miss this vision for your life because this is just the default reality for every follower of Christ. That's why it's not radical. It's not unique. It's not different. It's for everyone. I love this, this, this way that C.S. Lewis in an in essay called The Weight of Glory talks about that the end result of our regeneration is that we are glorified, but, but he gives this picture. He says this. He says, it is written 
that we shall stand before him. Or it is written that we shall stand before him. We shall appear. We shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that we shall actually survive the examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied. And then listen to this phrase, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but it is so. It's not fully true. It's not fully realized until Jesus returns, but, but as an artist delights in his work. He, he's remaking us. It's, we're walking in light, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. I want you to look at verse 7. Verse 7 is all gift. This invitation, this, this requirement, this reflection of what it looks like to be followers of God, that we walk in light, it is all gift. God is turning on the light so that we know where to, to go. I was thinking about a buddy who, um, was a bunch of years ago, uh, he, he got up in the middle of the night and he used the bathroom or something, it's like 3 a.m., um, didn't want to wake up his wife, so he didn't turn the lights on, figured he knew the house, knew where he was going, um, and he walked into a wall and he broke his nose. I shouldn't laugh, um, but he broke, his, he broke his nose. When we walk in the light, what God is doing is he's saying, I'm going to make clear your path so you stop smacking into walls, hurting yourselves. He's showing us how to walk. And, and with this, there's so much we can unpack. Really going through this sermon, I think I wrote four or five different sermons. I'm still cutting stuff on the fly. There's just so much in these verses. But I'll give you one of the things that happens when we walk in the light. We get this twofold gift from God. Look at the last half of verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. As we walk in the light, as we try to follow his commands and pattern our lives after King Jesus, one of the things that happens is that we have fellowship with one another. Now, that fellowship flows from our fellowship with God. That's what we've said already. That's what's come before in these verses. But right here, it's saying with one another that it works out horizontally. And in a negative sense, it's really easy to see because walking in darkness messes up relationships. Sin always messes up relationships. We, you know, we, we hurt each other. We wound each other. We harm each other as we do that. But there's a, there's a positive side to this. The fellowship, what it does is it, it deepens our relationship with those that have a similar walk, that have a similar desire, that have similar convictions, that have similar destinations. My uh, most daughter, Emma, got really into cross-country as she got into high school, and I remember her freshman year, um, their team was, 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 was really good. We, my, I didn't know anything about cross-country, so I was just kind of along for the ride, and I show up at, at the state cross-country meet, and I see Emma right before she's about to run, and I look at her hand, and she, like the back of her hand had all of these names on it, and it was the other six teammates that were on her team, and I asked her about it. I said, Emma, what's that about? She says, this is what we do before, before a big meet like this. We write each other's names on, on our hands so that as we're out on the course, we, we have this, we, we kind of imagine this, this thread that's connecting us all as we're suffering and we're struggling and we're trying to get to the finish line. So that, that what we look down is we're really hurting. We look down, we see there's someone else who's in this with me. And some of what happens is we walk in the light. It's not just me that we get to do this together, that friendship, what it does is it, it deepens 
are walking together. And what happens then is flourishing follows. It's one of the reasons we talk about being in community, talking about being discipleship, talking about being in gospel communities, being known more than, more than just attending a, a service, to, to be able to walk together because of the flourishing that comes. Now, there is a lot on the line in the very last part of verse 7. Let me read it again. We walk in the light as He is in light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. There's a tremendous amount on the line. You know, we might, we might be tempted to say, is this verse saying, if I perform, if I walk well, then God will forgive me and cleanse me of all sin? If that was true, that would destroy the gospel. That would destroy, that would, that, that would be contrary actually to what we'll see in other spots of 1 John. And thankfully, that is not what this verse is saying. It says that if we are walking, we have, not will have. And what I want to do is look at two different things that we have, that we realize we have as we walk. The first one is this, that it's a sign that we are indeed already justified. Our walking in the light, it reinforces in our hearts that we are indeed already cleansed by God. And where am I getting that? Part of it is this. Why would you care if you walk in the light of God if He wasn't your God? Why would you, why would you care? Why would you want to walk according to His standards as opposed to your own or the culture's? Now, no doubt, you could fake it for a while. You can follow the rules. You can, but, 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 but this is talking about a desire to have a different type of life because you've come to know God. You know, remember generation or regeneration. These new affections, these new desires. The reality is, is that justification and regeneration are a package deal. You don't get one without the other. And so this walking is we're walking and we're reminded that the blood of Jesus has covered my sin. We're, we're, we're reminded that it's, he's covered all the times, past, present, and future, that I have walked and will walk in darkness. So it's this wonderful sign that we are indeed justified. Let me give you another one, though. It's a reminder that there is power to change. Jesus doesn't just forgive. When it talks about the blood of Jesus, it's, it's, it's shorthand for his death, which is, which is a part of what's known as the gospel, the, the declaration of how God claims, saves, cares for, and his utter holiness, people that are rebellious and brings them in as sons and daughters. So when it says this, sometimes we reduce that down to Jesus merely forgives. It's not a small thing, but sometimes we just think Jesus merely forgives. But Jesus doesn't just forgive the penalty of sin, he frees us from the presence and the power of sin. It says he's going to cleanse us, not just forgive us. He's going to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, remember regeneration. Out of regeneration, out of these new hearts and new affections and new lives comes this beautiful phrase, progressive sanctification. We're going to look at that a lot in 1 John for now, just as one author put it. It's the process whereby every day God is working in our lives to make us more like Jesus. As we walk in the light, what's happening is God is making you more like Jesus. Growth is possible. That's what these verses say. Growth is possible. In fact, it's, it's expected as followers of Christ. But without the next verses, verses 8 and following, we might be tempted that, to think that the growth is perpetual and that it's perfect. Um, the next verses are grace reminders for the struggle. If, verse 8, we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if 
We say we have not sinned. We make him a liar and his word is not in us. Pretty much everything in my body hurts almost all the time. Um, but I keep running because I love running. And so I smell like Tiger Balm all the time. I'm constantly putting Tiger Balm on to try to deal with like sore joints and muscles and all sorts of stuff because it's a little bit of a balm to keep me going. These verses so much more. They are, can be such a relief. It's salve for the struggle that we have with sin. It's balm for the believer. It's comfort for the conscience. It's grace reminders as we grow slower than we want. I want you to look again at the repetition of these verses. Think about the emphasis. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Verse 1 of chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Back and forth, back and forth. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness. Verse 7, but if we walk with him, we, are, we have fellowship with one another and we are cleansed from all sin. I mean, it is just this beautiful, beautiful emphasis. It's back and forth three different times, three different times trying to, trying to really create the emphasis of this. And, and I love the way Karl Barth says, he says, we are forbidden to take sin more seriously than grace. That's what these verses are saying is you're trying to grow in your Christian life and you're trying to walk in darkness. It's giving us this wonderful caution that it's not going to be perfect and it's not going to be perpetual and it's not going to be complete. And as you do it, don't you dare take your sin more seriously than you do God's grace. That's why there's three different times this reminder of the grace of God in the work of Jesus Christ as we struggle with sin, as we struggle against sin. That is just the reality for followers of Jesus Christ. I thank God for the back and forth structure of these verses. What it does is it helps with our expectations as we live out this Christian life. If you didn't have verse 8, you might think, I'm just going to keep growing. I'm just going to walk in light. I'm never going to go back to darkness. I'm never going to stumble. I'm never going to walk into the wall in the middle of the night and break my nose spiritually as it were. But that's not what these texts say. It says you will struggle with sin as you struggle against sin, period. You will. As you fight against it, as you fight to walk in the light, you're, you're going to mess up. We don't want it that way. We want sinless perfection. We want to be fully free. We want to be fully light. But the, verse 8 reminds us that Christians are mixed bags still, that there's still sin we have to battle. There's still sin that sometimes is going to win. So let me give you a couple of expectations for this. Really simple one, you will sin as a Christian. Some of the stuff that Christians do, they sin. Christians sin. I personally adore verse 8 and verse 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. It's saying you sin. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we've never sinned. We make him a liar. The, the, the language there is intense and big, but it's saying you are going to sin. You have sinned. You have sinned. You will sin. Hypocrisy for a Christian is not that they sin. It's that they say they don't sin. So on this Christian life, we're not, this isn't perfection. This is saying that this is staying in the place that I will sin. Let me give you another expectation for the Christian life from these verses. You will struggle with sin as a Christian even as you struggle against sin. You will struggle with sin as a Christian even as you struggle against sin. You're trying to battle your sin. 
you're trying to walk in light, you're trying to be conformed to the pattern of Jesus, you will still be battling sin that wants to keep you back in darkness. It's just the reality of it. I was talking to a really close friend uh, recently about an area uh, in her life that uh, God, God had been exposing, He's bringing light into. Um, and, and as this light came in to expose just to maybe an area of, of, of sin, of walking in darkness, uh, gave some clarity, gave, gave some real penetrating clarity and, and woke her up to something that's true um, that doesn't, she didn't want to have it be true. And I was like, I asked, I said, well, how do you, how do you feel about this? It's been, been exposed now. It's been brought to light. Because like, I'm hearing this is such good news. And her response was, was really telling me. She said, I'm worried. I said, why? She goes, because now that this thing, that that it's been exposed, I'm not so sure that I'm still not going to go back to those old patterns, even though I don't want to. I think most of us can relate to that. This idea that God exposes something in us and, and we want to walk in light, but we're so afraid to go back to these old habits and, and patterns. And I was trying to think about this, like what would be a really good mascot? What would be a really good picture for what our sanctification journey looks like as we say like, okay, I'm gonna walk in the light. I love it. I'm gonna walk in the light, but I have sin. Verse eight. Then verse nine. But I can confess my sin. He's faithful and just to forgive and then cleanse me. Okay, great. I'm there. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned. I mean, it's just back and forth, back and forth. And I thought maybe this would be a, a suggestion to you. Make the bumblebee your sanctification mascot. Make the bumblebee. Think of a bumblebee. They'll find the pollen. They'll get it back to the hive. They'll make the honey. They'll do all of those things. But think about the flight that they take to get there. It is right? And you look at the body, like how does a bumblebee even fly? I mean, it, that is the journey for followers of Christ. That's the Christian life is we're bumbling and stumbling towards glory. Let me give you what, what was probably one of my favorite prayers in the Bible, and I would suggest is a perfect prayer for First John. It's this, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. I believe I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Help me believe where I don't. I believe I can walk in newness of life. Help me where I don't believe it. I believe God is light. Help me where I don't believe it. I believe light is better than darkness. Help me where I don't believe it. I believe I am saved by the grace of Jesus Christ alone. Help me where I don't believe it as I walk, as I walk. Let me give you the not-so-secret weapon as you struggle. We see it in verse 9, confession. Confession. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that word? How often do you see that work out in your life? Confession is frightening for many people, maybe most people. But look at the payoff in this, this verse. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, to remind us that we are forgiven in Christ and there is power in Christ to grow. Confession helps that happen. You know, how so? How does confession help us to try to walk in light? Um, I, my wife and I, we bought our current house, I think about seven and a half years ago or so. And it was a new development that went in. And so all the trees were cut down. So there's no big trees around anywhere. And so for the first couple years, I noticed there's there no moss on, on any of the roofs in, in this little subdivision. Um, but, but more recently, I began to notice there's spots where, where moss has started 
to grow. Not, not a ton of them, but there's these spots where it's starting to, to build up. And it, can you guess the spots where it would begin to build up? It's the spots where the sun doesn't hit. It's the spots of the roof that stay in shadow. It's very similar to us in sin. Sin flourishes where it stays in darkness. It needs that condition. It, it really benefits from the condition of hiddenness for it to flourish and for it to grow. Confession brings what's in the dark into the light so that the light can remove its power. Confession takes the power of the sin. There's lots of ways this happened. I'll give you one of them. As you think about um, like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, or, or NA, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, and this courageous battle against addiction, what, what, what takes place if you're in a program like that is you have a sponsor, you have somebody that, that, you, that you get to, to, to call and you say, this is what I'm tempted with, this is what I'm struggling with. Or you go to a, a meeting regularly, you put as many in as you need and you can so that you can say, this is what's going on. This is, this is how the darkness wants to, to get me. And part of the power and the benefit of saying, whether it's here's how I've, I've, I've succumbed to this or here's how I'm battling this, is that when you do it, it comes into the light and, and it just removes the, some of the strength and some of the power of that, of that sin or of that temptation. So what a text like this is inviting us to in the Christian life in light of God who is our foundation in light of the perfect forgiveness of Christ is that we can confess all the stuff that wants to stay in the darkness. We can bring it in and the light just begins to kill it. And one of the things that we might ask with this is that what makes being honest or confession so hard? Because this text presents it as something ordinary and normal and expected in the Christian life. What makes it so hard? The way we see ourselves for sure, we don't want to be honest about the stuff that's dark. Maybe the way we think God will see us, that we're worried about how he'll see it. But, but we know, I mean, if we, if we have the Bible, if we have God, like, he's going to forgive us. I mean, it says it over and over, and he's going to forgive it. I would suggest that one of the things that makes confession really hard is how other people will see us. Like, I know God will love me, but will you? I'm really honest about the stuff that's dark. Will the people around me still love me? The way we treat each other as we stumble forward in this walk will make these verses in this practice significantly easier or significantly harder. This matters so much. Putting these verses into practice is really helped or hurt by how we actually do this together. And like I said, I wrote like four or five different sermons, so I'm going to try to do this quickly, but I don't want to miss this tethered to this idea of confession and walking in the light because this is we, not just me. I could probably rename this sermon, Christians struggle with sin with other Christians that struggle with sin under the glory of God. Or Christians struggle with sin with other Christians that struggle with sin under the grace of Jesus. This is our common reality. And the more we get that, the better we'll struggle. Let me give you two dreams that I have for our church. Dream one is this, that our church would be the first place that you confess, not the last. That our church, and, and I'm not saying in front of the whole church. I'm saying in, in the appropriate relationships in community, that, that would be the place that you confess first, not the last. Burke Parsons says it like this. He says, we need to be able to talk about our sins. The church shouldn't be the last place you go. It should be the first place you go. And if you can't, I, I, this is, I, I hope you hear this. I really hope you hear this. 
If you can't go to your elder in your church and talk to him about your sin because you're afraid, you probably need to find a church where they're going to be ready to show you grace, love, and forgiveness, but where they're also willing to help you get the help you need. Now, if, if you can't come and confess because of, of your own anxieties around it, that, let's walk through that. But if you can't because you're in an environment where you're just going to get hammered and pounded on, his instruction is find a place where you can. Because this text is saying the normal, normative, everyday reality as a follower of Christ is to say, I want to walk in the light and I still have sin, which means I'm going to confess. Kent, Kent Dunnington says it like this. He says, the church has too often been less committed to fostering an atmosphere in which its members feel not only free, but indeed expected to publicly recognize their status as sinners and to narrate their lives to others within this paradigm. Theologically, the recognition of one's status as sinner is also an achievement, yet we often do not treat it as such. Biblically, the mandate to truthfully and publicly declare our sinfulness is crucial to our growth in holiness. I hope you hear it. It's the normative, everyday, biblical expectation of people that want to look like Jesus as they're going to talk about the areas they don't look like Jesus under the finished work of Jesus. And we get to make that real for each other. I'll give you dream two. It's dream one is that our church would be the first place you confess dream two related to it, that, that you would be open and unafraid in our church because of the grace of Jesus Christ and the way people respond around you, that you would be open and unafraid. Read a book on Psalms 120 through 134 a few months ago that had that as a title. I just thought that is an incredible phrase for what life in the local church under the grace of Jesus could feel like, open and unafraid. It's why our house rules matter so much as a church. It's why we have things like, it's okay to not be okay. And everyone's a work in progress. And, and, and this next one that comes from texts like this, confession takes courage. We don't want to cringe. I'll give you one story and I'll wrap this up. Um, I got a buddy who they were doing... They had a men's uh, retreat or men's conference, a bunch of guys gathered there, and they actually were working through First John, and they're in this section here, and as, as my friend was preaching from these, these verses, um, he, he said, he goes, it was, it was this moment, and he goes, you couldn't fabricate it. We, we won't ever try to fabricate this, but he said, it just felt like the Spirit was like, you just stop right now, and so he stops, and he says, here's what we're going to do, man. We're going to stop right now, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna buddy up, and what I want you to do is I want you to look at this other guy. I want you to tell them the, the thing that's in darkness. I want, you to, I want you to confess the thing that you have not confessed. Now, that is a dangerous moment, depending on how people respond and how they react. And, and, and also, there's all sorts of caveats with me. He says, I want you to tell. And he said, he goes, it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen in all my years of being a pastor because guys started to do it. They started to take that thing in the darkness and they put it into the light because the grace of Jesus was so dazzlingly brilliant to them. They, for a moment, for a moment, they had no fear. So they began to say it and in that place as they brought that dark thing into the light, God began to kill it with the radiance of his glory. And here's what happened for these men. They, they experienced a freedom that so few of us ever get. 
They experience what this text is inviting us to, that Christians, we struggle with sin. We struggle against sin, but we struggle with sin. We sin, that's what we do under the grace of God, but we're making steps forward and we sometimes mess up with the grace of Jesus. We still struggle with sin. And we can become the kind of environments, we can, uh, we can become the kind of place where we can be open and unafraid, not because of our performance, but the performance of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul, or that's why John in this letter, he keeps going back there over and over and over again, that it's about what Christ has done. It set him free, and it would set us free. I end with this. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2 of 1 John 2. We'll spend next week diving into it more deeply. Maybe this will give you some freedom, some motivation, and ultimately some freedom again. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, big word, the wrath-bearing offering, the, the one who makes atonement, who forgives our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you, would you give us the unique, which should be so common, but the unique privilege of being able to walk in the light of this text that says that you are changing us saying your grace is sufficient for us, super sufficient for us, that we in Christ are not just forgiven the penalty of sin, but we are being freed from the power and presence of sin and that we get to do it as a community of people under the banner of no condemnation for those in Christ. There is only transformation left. May, help make that real for us. I pray that you would make that real for, for, as we're just gathered during this time that the stuff that's hidden, that we wouldn't be afraid to bring it into the light through confession. Because we hear from this text that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Make confession as ordinary, as normal, as expected in our church, as breathing. For your glory, for our transformation and freedom, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.